Welcome to the Personality Psychology Podcast. My name is Rebecca Weidmann and I'm the host of this episode. I'm very pleased to have Marie Henneke from the University of Siegen and Jana Nikitin from the University of Vienna with me today to talk about goals and motivations. Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming. Hi. Hi. Before we start, can you both tell me what you study as professors in your respective labs? Maybe we can start with Marie first and then Jana. Thank you very much for having me. I'm interested in human agency, so the way people take control over their lives. And I study this specifically on the level of self-regulation, so all the ways in which people try to attain good things in their lives, like happy relationships, good health good grades, satisfying, well-paying job, and things like that. And self-regulation, or the way I look at it, includes processes like goal setting, the initiation of goal pursuit, or the strategies that people use to stay on track with their goals. And I'm interested both in the processes that are helpful in general, but also in individual differences in how well people pursue their goals via these processes. So Why is it that some people are more successful than others? What is it that they do think or feel differently than the less successful people? That sounds super interesting. Thank you so much. Jana, what do you study? Thank you also for having me. I am actually a psychologist who studies development or developmental psychologist focusing on aging. And my particular focus is on social motivation, social goals, and how do they change across adulthood? So whether... Social goals differ between young and older adults and uh, whether they have different benefits or different adaptations in younger and older adulthood. And recently I studied also social and aging stereotypes in connection to social motivation. So how we see our aging or aging in general and whether this influences how we age in the social domain, so how our uh, social motivation changes. Oh, thank you so much. These are also interesting topics. So both of you study motivation and goals. Can you, and this is maybe a broader question, but can you explain to me why goals and motivations are important and how do they generally shape our lives? Yeah, I think your your second question already basically gives away the answer to your first question. I think they are important because they shape our lives. Think of all the decisions you have to make throughout your lives. Uh, maybe you worked hard to get a high school degree um, because you had the goal to attend university. And maybe you decided to study psychology because you wanted to work as a researcher. So that was your goal or become a psychotherapist. So these goals, and these are just examples from maybe the work or educational domain, but these goals generally shape where you invest effort and how you spend your time, whom you spend your time with, what you learn, and then in turn, things like your income and your well-being, for example. This is not true, of course, for goals like from the work or educational domain, like A lot of people, for example, pursue goals in the health domain. And there it's also pretty obvious that the more effort you invest into maintaining your health, for example, the longer your life may be, for example. But also just on an everyday basis, this will have an impact on the time you spend with, for example, exercising or chopping veggies or whatever. So I think on the long run, one could say that what you aspire in your life, the goals that you consider important and valuable to yourselves are really also important for your own development or developmental regulation. But even like on a very short-term perspective, we know from research that having goals like difficult, specific goals also helps your performance 
in the very moment while you're engaging in an activity. We also know that goals are important for our well-being, not just because goal attainment is a good thing that is positive for our well-being, but also the goal pursuit itself, like feeling invested into something is good for our well-being. And there are also differences in what kinds of goals are more or less conducive to well-being. So generally, I think goals are important because they shape both what we attain in life, but also uh, what we do and how we feel about that. Maybe just to add, goals give us direction in our lives. So the meaning of our lives is also very strongly connected to goals. Sense of control, having control over our lives. This is always connected to what we pursue and what we want and do not want in our lives. And at the end of, of the life, you're looking back on what you achieved or not achieved. And this is also connected to your goals in your life. So the, the development, the self-regulation is strongly influenced by your goals. Now, you come from different disciplines. Um, Marie, you're more a personality psychologist and Jana, you're more a developmental psychologist. How would you say goals and motivations fit into personality psychology? Where do you see the link? So goals are part of personality, but they are more flexible than, for example, personality traits like neuroticism, extroversion, and so on. So actually goals come partly from your personality. Before they are also uh, stable, but they are also flexible. And this is also something that's nice about goals because you can actually change your personality by setting and pursuing goals. For example, if you have the goal to be open to new experiences or to be open for new social relationships, then you can move toward these goals and also develop your personality to, to this direction. I very much agree with what Jana has said. I think there are also different ways of answering that question. And maybe one very simple way is that goals are also characteristic of who we are and what we do and how we evaluate situations. So in that way, they're very basically aspects of our personality because they give our behavior direction. They also provide consistency across situations. So this is also, of course, a feature of personality. And as Jana has said, they're also relatively stable. There is research by Olivia Etherton, for example, who has concluded that goals, life goals at least, the so very broad general goals, have actually trait-like stabilities. They're a bit lower in stability, so I think that also really is support for what Jana has said, that they are still flexible, and of course they don't have perfect stabilities, but they are still something that provides consistency over longer periods of time even. Yeah, so I think that's one way to look at it, and then also maybe in terms of the level of abstraction that we're talking about, like Nancy Cantor has a perspective on this that I really like, according to which traits are basically on the level of being, so what a person is like. And then we have a very much more specific level of doing, like what are we doing in a given situation or moment. And goals may link these two levels because they regulate our behavior in specific moments, but they're also impacted by our personalities. So there are these two directions, actually, our personalities shape our goals. And then also, as Jana mentioned, our goals shape our personalities, for example, on a long run in the way of like changing our personality traits if we desire that. But also very immediately, if we talk more about personality states, for example, they can be a means to 
pressing our goals or pursuing our goals, actually. And you've already mentioned that goals and motivation are flexible. That means they change. Is there a general trend to how goals and motivations change across the lifespan? There are also two parts uh, in this question. The one is uh, more about the contents of goals and how they are changed. And the second is about kind of goal orientation, I would entitle it. So about the goal, maybe orientation first. We know that in young adulthood, young people are more growth oriented. That means that they need to, uh, to, to uh, develop resources and they have also more resources to set and pursue goals. So that's kind of a bidirectionality. So we set more growth-oriented goals in young adulthood. So for example, to establish a career, to find a partner, to um, establish social relationships. And then these also help us to accumulate our resources in young adulthood. And the older we are, the more we have already resources and goals also that we achieved and the more we are oriented towards maintenance of uh, what we uh, achieved so we have more maintenance goals so for example to keep the social relationships that we have established and or to keep our career and then the older people are the more they are confronted with losses and the more they also adapt their goals to act against losses so they are more oriented towards loss-oriented goals. So for example, not to be less healthy as previous year or something like that. This is about the, the orientation, but there is also um, content of the goals uh, that is changing across adulthood. As already Ericsson said, there are some developmental tasks in adulthood and our goals are actually pretty connected to these development tasks. So in young adulthood, we have more goals that are career related, that are related to establishing of partnerships, social relationships, starting a family and so on. And the older we are, the contents of our goals are more about health, but also generativity, for example. And then against the end of the life, it's more about looking back to your life and acting towards yeah end of the life so to how to manage the end of the life maybe i just add one thing namely that we also see that older adults are more likely to set intrinsically motivated goals so there's this difference between goals that are intrinsically motivated and that have to do with things like self-acceptance community contribution pro-sociality emotional intimacy and those are goals that we find more often in older adults whereas younger adults are often still striving for more external or extrinsically motivated goals things that you can show to others like financial success or physical attractiveness status popularity and so these things also become less important as people get older which may in fact be a good thing because there's also research finding that intrinsically motivated goals are more conducive of well-being than these more extrinsically oriented goals and that actually reflects very nicely the result that Older adults also tend to be happier than uh, younger or middle-aged adults. That is not just like a selection bias from our studies. Then it may be that their shift in goal orientation also contributes to these changes in happiness. Maybe also these like changes in happiness can explain why older adults are usually very satisfied with their status quo. And so that may also be a reason why they're not necessarily striving for growth and gains, but are pretty much focused on maintaining their status and their situation. And older adults are also better in selecting goals. Younger adults do often pursue more multiple goals. 
because they have to, but also because they are a bit worse in selecting goals and all the adults are better in select important goals. So as uh, Mary already said, intrinsically, for example, intrinsically motivated goals. And this has also, as Laura Carstensen showed, something to do with future time perspectives. So not, not only about resources you have, but also about time left in your life. So the shorter the time, so your future time perspective, the shorter the time left in your life, the more you are motivated to feel actually to feel well in, in the moment. And this is why you also are motivated to have more intrinsically motivated goals. Whereas in young adulthood, where the future time perspective is kind of non-limited or it appears non-limited, you are more motivated to have growth goals or goals to develop resources. Thank you so much. So now comes like the $1 million question that every self-help book uh, tries to address. But can you talk a little bit about how people can become better at pursuing goals? Like if I have a health goal or a status goal, are there processes that help me get better at attaining those goals? Yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, the case. And of course, <laughs> you're also right that this is the million dollar question. So there's tons of research about this. And I think maybe one way of starting to answer that question is by saying that we don't only have to look at the ways that people pursue their goals, but also already at the state of where they set goals. And there, many of the listeners may have heard about setting smart goals. There's actually a lot of research also supporting this idea. So one part of it is that you should set goals for yourself that are relatively specific and concrete and measurable, for example. So instead of saying something like, I would like to exercise more often, be specific in how often you would like to exercise and what type of exercise you have in mind. Otherwise, you won't be able to assess your own progress with the goal. And then if you're unable to assess the progress, you will also be unable to mobilize more effort, for example, if you see that you are departing from your expectations about goal pursuit. So I think that's maybe the starting point, that you have to set goals that are relatively measurable and specific and ideally also meaningful to you. So we also know that if people pursue goals that they don't care about much, then of course they're not inclined to put, put much effort into their pursuit. Then once you have set a goal, I think it's very important to think about the ways in which you are going to pursue that goal. And that has different components. One is really specific planning. So there's a lot of research about implementation intentions, for example, who are very specific plans that define where, when, and how you would like to pursue the goal. So when are you going to go to the gym? What are you going to do there, for example, are aspects of planning. And then also the anticipation of obstacles and distractions. So for example, if we talk about exercising, people may feel tired at the end of the day, or it may be raining. And so that could be an excuse to going outdoors for a run. So for these situations where such uh, obstacles that can be anticipated, people should make plans on how to circumvent those. So if I'm too tired to go running, for example, it may be okay to just stretch in my living room in front of the TV for half an hour or something. Or if I don't want to go for a run because it's raining, then maybe the gym is a good alternative. So basically having alternative plans to circumvent obstacles and distractions. And then there's also many, many more strategies like rewarding oneself 
for Go Progress, seeking social support, like exercising with others who also hold you accountable for your exercising plans, monitoring your progress, and many, many other things. In our own research, we've also found that usually it's also really helpful to have multiple strategies, to not just like have one regulatory strategy where you think this may work for you, but actually an entire repertoire of things you may do if you um, encounter difficulties during goal pursuit or self-control conflict. So that's what I'm interested in most. And we there see that people who have a larger repertoire of strategies like planning, monitoring progress, rewarding oneself, seeking social support, etc., are in general more successful in their self-control. So these are things that people may want to keep in mind. And then I think on the long run, the maybe most important recipe for success is that you should try to make a habit out of the thing you want to do more, if it's like flossing or exercising regularly. And that is actually promoted by trying to do the thing always at the same time and in the same situation, for example. So in that way, being there rigid, actually, in your behavior, because that will then facilitate the process of habit formation. You can also piggyback, for example, on a habit you already have. So, for example, flossing is something that could be done or learned relatively easily because you may already have the habit of brushing your teeth twice a day. And so if you then tie flossing to brushing your teeth it may be really easy to habitualize in that form maybe to add to habit there is a research by Klaus Rothermund uh, which is very new uh, where he showed that how to develop the habits and actually the message is you have to do it once because if you do it once it it enhances the probability that you do the same behavior next time of course the longer the time period between the last behavior and the next behavior the less probability that you will repeat a behavior but actually doing a behavior always in increases the probability that you do exactly the same behavior next time so just do it <laughs> something how to at least start a habit And then maybe also a developmental perspective on goals pursued. There is a very old but important theory of selection, optimization, and compensation. So these are the three strategies how to pursue goals. You select goals on basis of your resources that you select goals. Then you optimize your means. That means that you can pursue these goals. And then if you experience losses or yeah, you are not so successful in pursuing the goal, then you compensate. So you have a compensation strategy. Actually, Maddie already said everything <laughs> in contently, but to summarize strategies, it's about selection, optimization and compensation. Cool. Thank you so much. So maybe we can talk um, about motivations and avoidance and approach motivations. Can you tell me how they change across the lifespan and if I can change them like willfully. I uh, did a lot of research in, in the social domain. So how social approach goes, that means approaching positive social relationship, positive social interactions, love, appreciation, intimacy, and so on. Change and how also uh, avoidance goes, that means avoiding of negative social interactions, like being hurt by someone or conflict changes across the lifespan. And what we found is that Social approach motivation actually decreases um, across uh, adulthood. So um, people, because they are less resources, are less approach motivated and are more avoidance motivated. But what is also interesting is that social approach motivation 
has much more positive consequences in young adulthood than in older adulthood. And social avoidance motivation has much more negative consequences in young adulthood in comparison to older adulthood. So it seems to be more adaptive to be approach motivated in young adulthood and to be maybe not more adaptive, but not less adaptive at least to be uh, avoidance motivated in older adulthood. And maybe one important thing is that actually approach motivation is not as more adaptive in older adulthood. There are still different approach motivations. So there might be also something uh, negative approach about the sources of approach motivation in older adults. So what we found is that actually older adults who have negative age stereotypes, so who think that aging is something about decline in cognitive decline, physical decline, that aging is actually something negative. They are less approach motivated, but then the approach motivation is also not really beneficial. So it seems that at least in some cases, older adults are less approach motivated because actually they fear negative consequences if they approach other people because they think as an older adult, they are not as welcome maybe um, as young adults are and therefore they do not even try. Maybe I can say something about, I think, the second part of your question, whether if you wanted to become more approach-oriented, whether that would be possible. And while I'm not aware of any research looking at that directly, or at least like in terms of measuring social approach orientation, how that changes intentionally, there is research showing that people can become more extroverted if they want to. And extroversion is closely tied to being approach-oriented, especially in the social domain. There is research showing both that uh, over longer periods of time, if people have goals to become more extroverted and they actually pursue those goals by acting in an extroverted manner, they also report trade changes in the desired direction turn out to be more extroverted than before. And there's also research showing by McCabe and Fleason that if you pursue the goal of being extroverted in the moment, that also helps you to act more extroverted, to show more extrovert behavior, higher state level of extroversion. And that in turn could then on the long run, if you continue to pursue that goal, of course, lead to more stable changes in your trains. So I think maybe that's at least part of the answer to becoming more approach-oriented. Yeah. And maybe something more about approach and awareness motivation in the social domains. What we found in our research is that loneliness is actually more connected to social approach motivation than social awareness motivation. I mean, negatively connected to social approach motivation than positively to social awareness motivation. So actually, it, it helps more if you try to be approach motivated. That means if you try to have positive social relationships, then avoiding of for example, being hurt or avoiding conflict does not add so much to not being lonely. What what adds is if you try to be connected to our, uh, other people. So to, to try to focus on the positive, not uh, necessarily to avoid the negative. Thank you. And this plays well into the next question that I wanted to ask, how you already talked about that we can have goals to change our personality. So if I want to become more extroverted, I can. Can you tell me more about that principle of self-regulatory personality development? Like maybe also what's the theory behind it and the state of evidence? Is that true for all the traits? Can I also become more chill <laughs> and less worrisome or more open to experience? Yeah, of course. So and generally the idea behind that work is that people may not 
always be happy with their current personalities or their trait levels. So maybe you feel that you're not chill enough or another person may feel that they are not conscientious enough to fulfill their work tasks properly or maybe their boss has already expressed some concerns. So and that way people may feel unhappy, for example, about their conscientiousness. And then if we talk about emotional stability, for example, there may also be more intrinsic reasons, right? Whereas conscientiousness may be conducive of pursuing goals, for example, emotional stability may be as well, but it also just doesn't feel great to be neurotic, right? To be emotionally unstable. People may think that they worry too much, that they feel too anxious and too irritated, and then maybe they want to change that. And I would say that if people feel this way about their current personalities, and if they also have some confidence that they can change their personalities, this may lead them to set goals for personality change. There's a lot of great work by Hudson and Fraley, mostly showing that such personality change goals predict actual personality change over time. And change goals actually predict personality change or growth in particular across all five traits. So you can increase your emotional stability if you want, and also your level of extraversion. Those are the strongest effects, but also the other three different big five traits. One should maybe also mention that these effect sizes aren't large, they're uh, modest, but we also know from other research that personality changes rather slowly, that change is difficult, so this is at least not very surprising. I think what's important to consider is also that, of course, just from setting a goal, that doesn't necessarily lead to the change you desire, but as uh, Hudson and Freddie put it, you have to follow through. So what you actually have to do is you have to implement the changes you want to see on a daily, on a momentary basis. Um, if you want to be more conscientious, you have to act in a conscientious way. You have to start setting an alarm clock to be punctual. You have to start making to-do lists um, or responding to emails right away. And this way, like, First, changing your state expressions of personality, your actual behavior and daily life. You may then, on the long run, probably through the formation of habits, also become more conscientious on the trade level. I think that is the theory, and I think especially the work by Hudson and Frady supports that such personality change is possible. I also want to mention that it's they're not easy, as I said, and the changes are usually modest, but there's also research showing that there are ways to support people in their goals to change their personalities. So, for example, research by Miriam Stieger and Matthias Allemand showing that an app can help people in changing their personality traits intentionally. And then there's also been this really informative meta-analysis by Brent Roberts showing that interventions like therapy also help people to change their personality traits. And that's interesting, I think, because in therapy, people probably don't explicitly say they want to become more extroverted or they want to become less neurotic, but they come with a more specific problem, right? They suffer from a specific anxiety or panic disorder or depression. But nevertheless, these interventions cause changes in their more general or broader personality traits. And in particular, with regard to emotional stability, where we see increases through therapy and extraversion. And people actually 
across the lifespan, they develop towards more major personality. So they develop towards more emotional stability, at, mean, at, at least at the, at the mean level, towards more conscientiousness and more um, extroversion too. So extroversion on the dominance, actually the dominance uh, subcomponent of, uh, of extroversion. So that there is some development, some kind of natural development towards these personality traits that we want to have. Yeah, I think that's a bit where this entire idea of looking at self-regulated personality development started, that we see across the lifespan that people change in ways that most people would consider desirable, becoming more conscientious, for example, becoming more emotionally stable. And there are, of course, other causes for these developments, like the roles we take, for example, or life events may play a role in this. But an alternative idea was that maybe we really desire these changes. They consider these changes beneficial for other goals, for example, and that's why they do something to change in desired ways. Thank you so much. Now that we're among women, uh, I was wondering what would be your best advice for female early career scholars? And then also maybe you could talk a little bit about what roadblocks you have experienced that you hope early career researchers will not experience in the future. Yeah, where to start? <laughs> Maybe with the roadblocks. <laughs> so as a mom of three children, I experience it's really difficult to this geographical flexibility to move from one university to another and to have at the same time a relationship and children. <laughs> Although I think it's really something that is also desirable to, to enlarge your network and to learn more about research. If you change your universities, but at the same time, it's for your personal life, it's sometimes sometimes really hard. So this is something that I would probably wish not to, <laughs> to have to go through. Yeah, so maybe I want to add, I'm not a mother, but I also felt that I was quite lucky and faced relatively few roadblocks, I think, because I had great mentors. And I think so maybe that is the advice that I would give. If you can, be very selective in terms of the people you work with. And I've maybe had two different groups of mentors. One was either the very successful and supportive women that were also great role models for me, I think, and were able to show me that as a woman, you can be very successful in academia. And then the other group were very successful, supportive men who also never, like not in the slightest, doubted my belonging in academia. So I think that's maybe the advice I would give is to be quite selective, not only in terms of the mentors, but later also maybe the, the people you surround yourself with, the peers you work with, and to stay away from difficult people who do not support you. And I think that's usually possible at least in like later stages of being an early career researcher maybe you may not be very lucky when selecting your PhD advisor or something but if there you notice that it's really really difficult to get along with a person or that person doubts your belonging in academia then it's probably not a perfect fit and you may want to consider moving somewhere else because I think mentors are so important. The people you work with are so important. I also think that aside from the more senior people we work with, it's really, really helpful to surround yourself with a network or a support group of peers, your age or your academic age that are in very similar situations like you. So you have someone to share your feelings with, you know, can ask questions about academia and talk about the hidden things that we may not always 
understand right away as early career researchers. So I, I felt that this was really important for me um, also to increase my feeling of belonging in academia because I had other people around me who were peers and maybe even friends then um, and were good reasons to stay in academia as well. And then maybe one thing, and that's not really advice, it's more of a wish. I do think that women sometimes may lack the self-esteem of their male counterparts in academia. And I really wish this was different. So if there was any advice to give about this, then do not let your imposter syndrome stop you from anything because you're also in good company. Like there's quite a lot of people in academia who feel like imposters and you're even in very good company. Like I've heard from people who are really uh, distinguished and established in academia that they sometimes still feel like an imposter and that someone is going to notice that they don't belong or whatever. (laughs) And I think this is really important because it makes you feel like, okay, feeling like an imposter really doesn't mean you're an imposter. And then maybe actually feeling like an imposter is a bit more likable than being that dislikable person who always thinks he or she is the smartest person in the room. So normalize feeling like an imposter. Don't feel bad about it, but also don't let it keep you from pursuing what you want to pursue in academia. I couldn't agree more. And I would just add that part of it is also to have a scientific topic that you are interested in and that you believe in and that you pursue because you are interested in and because you think that is something worth pursuing and not because you think this is something that's strategically smart to pursue, but to have the self-esteem actually to do your research and to stay for your research. Cool. Thank you so much. I mean, we're at the end of the interview. I'm so happy I was able to ask you um, some of my questions. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for the interview. I think this was fun. Yes, it was very fun. Thank you very much.